0: Hello, my name is Misha Iman and you're listening to True Crime Aficionados. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the inaugural episode of True Crime Aficionados. Thank you so much for joining me, Misha Iman, your lovely host down this wild ride that is Ted Bundy. This first episode, I will get into his villainous origin stories. But before we get started, please. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, all that jazz, because you know, science, algorithms, we want the best. This episode, I dug deep in all the 10 books plus various articles I read about Ted Bundy. And I, he's a piece of shit, but finding out some things about his childhood actually made me feel a little bit bad for him. Not that bad, but a little bit bad. All right, let's get into it. Mother Louise was the eldest of three daughters. She was described as being prim, modest, and at the time was a department store clerk. She had been president of the young people's group at church right up until her pregnancy was discovered. She was shunned, asked to leave, and made to feel she should never return. Having an illegitimate child in 1946 was a disgrace to his mother and of course a humiliation to his family because 1946 religion His mother had to go out of state to have her first child, at the time an abortion out of the question. Louise herself maintains to this day that she didn't suffer from a sense of shame within her family or anyone else. She claimed, I had no problems whatsoever with anyone. You will learn Louise Bundy is delusional as fuck. However, there is evidence that she was made to feel deep shame and had ample motivation to really hate this unborn child she didn't even want. According to records, Louise was seven months pregnant and completely alone when she arrived on the doorstep of the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in 1946. Neither her parents nor siblings accompanied her. Rather, the local minister's wife made the trip with her, dropped her off at the doorstep, and left. Also, a home for unwed mothers... If you hate women, just say so. Like a home for unwed mothers because God forbid a woman wants to have a child without being married to a man. What will we do? (laughs) His mom spent 63 days at this home. Bundy's aunt Julia, who was 15 at the time, says she wasn't told a single word when her sister became pregnant. She doesn't even remember her sister having a date, let alone fucking. She does remember faint whispers in the night and watching her sister pack a bag and leave. She said, to be in a family like ours, I have to face my father, which, T, because my dad don't play that. Not once, when he lived in that house for three years, was his illegitimacy ever discussed, ever. Not once, not with anyone, ever. After his birth in November of 1946, Ted was left by his mother at this home for unwed mothers for three months. Louise traveled back to Philly where she and her family really got into it as to whether or not she should keep this baby or give him up for adoption. Eventually, Louise says it was her dad that actually convinced her to keep Ted and not give him up. So again, after three months, three months of trying to decide, which that's a long time to (laughs) to decide, she dragged her heels, went back to Vermont, picked up her baby and brought him back home. When Ted was asked by Dr. Carlisle, a psychologist, about his youth, he said he moved to Philadelphia from Vermont, purposefully omitting that he was born in this home for unwed mothers. When investigators preparing for a 1987 competency hearing for Ted requested information about Ted from the home for unwed mothers, an incomplete report was sent. What remains missing, to this day, is a mystery. The home said it had to delete material because Mrs. Bundy wouldn't sign the release. Girl, what are you hiding? When Louise returned to Philadelphia, she also went back to the church group. She said, fuck you hoes, I had my baby, my waist is still snatched, and I'm back. Which, work. I don't know if she ever got her position as president back, but she sure as hell went back. Of his mother, Ted said, My mother was involved in activities in school, and she was at the top of her class. She was intelligent active, and outgoing. She was on the yearbook staff. She became pregnant with me shortly after graduation. She could have gone to college, but she didn't have a scholarship. Psychiatrist Dr. Dorothy Lewis says, despite the public displays of affection between Mrs. Bundy and her son, such as her saying, you'll always be my precious son, and him saying, I love you, mom, that their relationship was so superficial. Many of Ted's last thoughts and words before he was executed were about his deep confusion and anger toward his mother. To the very end, Ted wanted to understand why he had so much rage. He would say, well, it doesn't matter what went on between me and my mother then because we've patched it up now. At the same time, he did feel that his rage toward his mother was very, very important. Nonetheless, Even though he struggled to the very end to protect his family image, he could not help but talk intensely about how he felt unloved by his mother. During Mrs. Bundy's interview with Myra McPherson for her amazing article in Vanity Fair titled The Roots of Evil, please go check it out, Myra writes, After hours of the most rosy portrayal of her life with Ted, Louise Bundy's face is blank as she talks about her decision to keep her baby. Surprisingly, a bitter edge shows through. Hindsight is great, she says. You can look back and think, well, maybe I shouldn't have done it. The sigh escapes. But there's no point in going over that. What is, is. When asked, wouldn't she have felt awful giving Ted up for adoption? Louise Bundy's answer is one word. Probably. (laughs) I know, Mimi, she's the fucking absolute worst. Ted Bundy's father was rumored to be a man by the name of Jack Worthington, who had flown in from the Second World War. Ted said he never knew of his father, but he had a strong curiosity about him. Louise's story has always been that in 1946, fresh out of high school, she worked as a clerk at an insurance company, where she met Ted's father through a friend at work. Conveniently, she doesn't remember this friend's name, of course. Ted's father gave her his name as Jack Worthington. He is described as being a suave veteran of the recent war and a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. He hinted to Louise of old money. She claims to have met him, and within weeks, he hid it, quit it, and dipped. Louise, however, says that when she called the university, she was told no one had ever enrolled under the name he'd given her. Also, if his mom, as she claims, got pregnant immediately after high school and then gave birth to Ted Bundy that same year in November, typically people graduate high school, what, May, June, November? That does not equal nine months. He wasn't a preemie. Sis is lying. One relative says a strong claim was that his father was an older, married member of the church which would explain why they kicked her the fuck out, and Louise succumbed to him at a one-time-only moment at a religious retreat. Whoever he was, no family member believed that he was this phantom figure Louise claims wandered briefly in and out of her life. In the Cowell home, his Aunt Julia said that Ted's real father was never mentioned, literally never. At the time, Aunt Julia was 12 years old when Ted was brought back to live with them. She remembers Ted as being a sweet, darling boy, and like many in the family, has tried to figure out what the fuck happened. I felt it was crucial all along that Ted need to know who his father was. Louise, however, covered it up and blocked it out. He was very much like my father, wanting to put forth only the good. Great Aunt Virginia Bristol, who's a fucking homie, recalls the year Ted was born. When I heard Louise was not home, I knew things weren't right. Next thing I heard was that Sam and Eleanor had adopted a boy. I was smart enough to know damn well they weren't adopting this baby. No adoption agency would give them one. Eleanor wasn't well enough to take care of a baby. I knew it had to be Louise's baby. But they wanted to cover it up. All we ever got were evasions. I had a very secretive brother. Ted's grandfather, Samuel Cowell, was known to have a difficult disposition to say the least. Family members have long been puzzled as to why this explosive individual didn't, as one put it, take off after the guy. However, it was not a subject to be raised around Ted's grandfather. When a family member once asked him about Ted's paternity, his grandfather became enraged and apparently acted like a madman. He was wild. He was furious, the relative said. So many undisclosed mysteries about Ted's father has given rise to a much darker secret. It's bananas. Way worse than being illegitimate. I know John Snow is somewhere crying about that. But however, writers, criminologists, psychiatrists, and investigators have wondered perhaps if maybe Ted's grandfather was really his father. When the question is put to his mother, Louise, she simply demurs and in a matter-of-fact tone says, no, no way. Later on the phone, Louise's denial is way more vehement, but without the outrage or indignation that one might expect when, I don't know, being accused of fucking your dad, Louise says, oh my goodness, that's totally out of the question. It's theorized that one reason for Mrs. Bundy's lack of surprise is that she's heard the question before, because apparently It's been asked of not only her, but other relatives, because people really believe that that might be Ted's true father. Which is fucking wild. Wild! One relative says, When Dr. Lewis raised that question with me, I thought, well, I don't believe it, but anything is possible. But, you know, it's cruel to raise it now. All it will ever be is conjecture. Louise is the only person who knows who his father is, and she's never told. I really believe whatever happened is so blocked out in her mind that we will never know. And that relative was fucking right. Also, the relative to say anything is possible? No, incest should not be possible. That is a hill I will gladly fucking die on. No, no. (laughs) Once Louise was finally strong armed into keeping Ted, she moved back home to Philadelphia. The Cowles, which is Louise's maiden name, were comprised of a large, but loosely knit clan of intelligent, hardworking people. Up until Ted Bundy, they hadn't produced so much as a jaywalker. Ted said he initially lived in a large house with his mother, grandparents, and aunts, and that he received a lot of attention from his two teenage aunts. He said, They were like my sisters when I was a little kid. They fussed over me. My grandparents doted over me because I was their first grandchild. Dr. Al Carlisle, A psychologist charged with writing the 1976 Psychological Assessment of Ted Bundy, which is such a good read, says, This was an interesting statement. He didn't say anything about attention or care he received from his mother, the attention came from his aunts. During his appeals process in 1986, a series of tests were conducted by Dr. Dorothy Lewis, which concluded Ted lacks any core experience of care and nurture or any emotional sustenance. Severe rejection experiences have seriously warped his personality development and led to a deep denial or repression of any basic needs for affection. Severe early deprivation has led to a poor ability to relate to or understand people. Of course, Ted's mother has some shit to say about Dr. Lewis's findings. Dr. Lewis fancies herself an authority on this, but she's not. She, she actually is. She has a degree in this, but go off. She says, This business about violence in Ted's childhood is a figment of the good doctor's imagination. The truth is stretched way out of shape. Dr. Lewis stands by her report, which, work, and says that it's not uncommon for families to conceal material that would embarrass them. Unfortunately, the condemned inmate, Ted Bundy in this situation, often participates in this collusion because the family, as dysfunctional as it is, is all that he has. Although Louise Bundy paints Ted as the model son whose favorite book was Treasure Island and believed in Santa Claus, hated vegetables, and sometimes even believed there were monsters in his closet. Okay. Dr. Lewis, in discussing her final hours with Ted, revealed he really talked about how very, very early he had a fascination with stories of murder and murderers and death. At that early time, the fascination was not with pornography, as he said later in life. It fused later with pornography. Swiss psychoanalysis, Alice Miller, an expert on violence, explains that the roots of adult violent behavior can be found in a level of parental cruelty that's invisible to the untrained eye. She says, "Parents who stress that imposing their own values on children is done for the child's own benefit." commit a form of gentle violence, suppressing completely the child's emerging personality and lighting a fuse of aggressiveness that will explode decades later. These children are instilled with a sense of helplessness and frustration because they are never allowed to acknowledge feelings of rage and rebellion. Granted, thousands of children have endured similar rejecting childhood experiences. She writes, serial killers, however, Belong to the extreme category of children who were not only unwanted, but were punished for having been born. Some of the investigators, psychiatrists, reporters, and authors who over the years have traveled to Louise Bundy's home see her expressions of love toward her son as mechanical and hollow. They say all the right words are put forth, but her words are devoid of emotion. Ted's Aunt Julia recounts that she was 15 years old when she woke one morning to see little baby Ted secretly lifting up the covers of her bed and placing three butcher knives beside her. (laughs) When all of this violence and murder about Ted started to come about, that little knife incident kept coming back to me. I don't think it happened more than once or twice, but he just stood there and grinned. I shooed him out of the room, and took the implements back down to the kitchen and told my mother about it. I remember thinking at the time that I was the only one who thought it was strange. Nobody did anything. Which, excuse me, but there's no fucking way. I'm not a mother. I don't have kids. But there's no way that my kid or any child is placing butcher knives in my bed multiple times without me being like, one, how the fuck did you tiny little two-year-old get a bunch of butcher knives? Two, How did no other adults in this house see this child running around with a knife? And three, let's throw the whole baby away if you're not going to put him in fucking therapy because what the fuck? Couldn't have been my black ass. Nope. Fuck that kid. Ted would also have periods, even as a child, where he would seem to suddenly morph into this other very strange being. One moment, he would be completely fine. The next, he would become somebody else. His great aunt said, Ted had episodes where he would seem to turn into another unrecognizable person. When she witnessed one such episode, she suddenly found herself terrified of her favorite nephew as they waited together at a dark train station. Even at a young age, these severe cracks in his personality were already visible. Dr. Lewis says, Such behavior in a toddler is extraordinary, and to the best of my knowledge, only seen in very seriously traumatized children who have either themselves been victims of extraordinary abuse or children who have witnessed extreme violence among family members. I agree, Mimi. Child abuse is bad. His grandfather, she says, certainly sounds like he was a disturbed individual. It was rumored that Ted's grandfather, Samuel Cowell, was a very violent man whose fits of anger could escalate into him beating the shit out of someone. It was also alleged that he was abusive to animals, had a collection of pornography, which it is said that Ted located and would peruse at will when he was just three or four years old. And he was also known to often yell at imaginary objects. Totally normal. His grandfather's temper tantrums were so violent that Ted's aunt Julia said she did not look forward to my father coming home. The shouting was always just around the corner. Aunt Julia revealed that on one occasion, her father was so incensed at her sleeping until nine that he once yanked her out of bed so hard she stumbled down a three-step landing. But that's the only time he touched me, she insists. Dr. Lewis made it sound like he threw me down a flight of stairs. By all accounts, Ted's grandfather was an extremely violent and frightening individual. He was a talented landscape gardener who was obsessed with his plants, which, same. However, his grandfather would kick dogs until they howled and swing cats by the tail if animals got near them. According to Aunt Julia, he would get so mad that he would jump up and down and rage at the men who worked for him. Ted Bundy, however, only remembered his grandfather as a highly educated and loving man and a person he wanted to pattern his life after. Myra McPherson writes, Mrs. Bundy frowns when asked to describe what her father was really like. Well, she admits, he could get awfully mad and yell out. I mean, you could hear him from here down to the corner. He had a bad temper, but it wasn't... She pauses. It wasn't anything. Her voice trails off. He was never violent with anyone. It is then that Mrs. Bundy reveals one key fact hidden for more than a decade of intense speculation over Ted Bundy's background. My dad did beat up on my mother once in a while. I doubt if my mother ever got a chance to express her opinions about anything. Eleanor Cowell, Ted's grandmother, in addition to being a victim of domestic violence at the hands of her piece of shit husband, was repeatedly taken to hospitals for shock treatments or depression. Again, if you hate women, just fucking say so. Her fears grew until she refused to leave the house ultimately becoming a victim of agoraphobia and being locked in the house with her domestic abuser. Great. Ted's great-aunt Virginia Bristol, Sam Cowell's feisty, articulate 80-year-old sister, told Dr. Lewis, Sam Cowell's own brothers feared him and that I always thought he was crazy. According to one of Ted's cousins, his grandfather, a deacon at the church, hid pornography, which Ted and his cousins were pour over as toddlers in the greenhouse. Other relatives say, in addition to all of those other winning qualities, that he was a bigot, he hated black people, Italians, and Catholics. Again, this was Ted Bundy's role model. Apparently, Grandfather Cowell's rage was never leveled at Bundy. Ted had only pleasant memories with Grandfather and had no recollection of family violence. Dr. Lewis says, When a child has been so horribly traumatized, that they can't tolerate what they've witnessed or been a part of, they tend to totally repress and be unable to recall the trauma to mind. And I suspect that this is what happened with Ted Bundy. Ted's grandfather died while he was in prison. And for years, Louise and her siblings hit newspaper stories about Ted's serial killing from his grandfather. And all of that time, Louise never once discussed Ted's murders with her father. I'm not sure how much he knew when he died, says Louise. Just before his fourth birthday in 1951, Ted and his mother left Philadelphia to join her uncle Jack Cowell, his wife Aunt Eleanor, and son John in Tacoma, Washington. Ted told the writers of The Only Living Witness, Stephen Mashaud and Hugh Ainsworth, that the move upset him. Regardless of the reason for the move, Ted said it was possibly for mother to start over again. Both mother and grandfather were strong-minded people, which what the fuck does that mean? Louise didn't want Ted subjected to ridicule because he shared the same last name as his great-uncle and his mother. So before the move west, Ted's last name was changed from Cowell to Nelson, making him Theodore Robert Nelson. Of his family in Tacoma, Ted said, Aunt Eleanor came from a wealthy family, the upper crust. Uncle Jack didn't have many things. Aunt Eleanor was frail and had breakfast in bed. She was very intelligent and I felt close to her. She was very refined, she never shouted, and she was restrained. So who, the question is in his life, did shout, and who was unrestrained? His uncle, Jack Cowell, was only a few years older than his niece, Louise. He was a music professor at Tacoma's College of Puget Sound. Ted considered him to be a man of both accomplishment and refinement, and was drawn to his uncle Jack's gleaming dark piano, the classical music that filled the house, and his uncle's air of cultivation. Early in life, Ted decided to pattern himself after his sophisticated Uncle Jack. Louise took Ted away from his grandfather, the only father figure he ever really knew. Dr. Lewis says, You do have to wonder about the separation from his grandfather. Ted went away with a very angry, very rejecting, cold woman who didn't really want him and who took him away from the one person who was really warm to him. Apparently, the rejection of his mother was so deep that as a young adult, Ted once asked his great uncle Jack to adopt him. Can you imagine doing that to a mother, says Aunt Julia? When I heard that, I knew something was terribly, terribly wrong. In downtown Tacoma, his mother got a job as a secretary at the Council of Churches office. Though Jesus ain't help her when she got pregnant, sorry, anyway. (laughs) She was introduced to a man named John Culpepper Bundy, a cook at a veterans' hospital. They fell in love and were married later that year. After the marriage, John Bundy adopted Ted, and his name changed for the last time to Theodora Robert Bundy. His mother and John went on to have more kids, a daughter, Linda, born in 52, a son, Glenn, born in 54, Sandra, born in 56, and lastly, Richard, born in 61. Ted didn't know where babies came from or how they were made, but he knew they had something to do with Johnny. He believed throughout his entire life that his mother suffered a great deal at his sister Linda's birth. However, according to his mother, this pregnancy was completely uneventful. The question is, who's lying? Because both of these hoes are fucking liars. As other children came into the home, Ted was in the difficult position of being the oldest child, yet a stepson. He lost the emotional contact with his grandparents and was now required to share his mother with his stepfather and younger half-siblings. When his mother married John Bundy and had additional children, Ted likely felt left out, perhaps even rejected or abandoned. He never talked to Dr. Carlisle about family activities or vacations or any fun things that he may have done with his family. When he was about five years old, Ted told friends that he was so jealous of his new daddy that he staged a temper tantrum where he publicly wet his pants to get even. Ted later conceded that this tantrum and the many others probably was a result over his jealousy of his mother and his fear that Johnny's appearance would further disrupt his world. At home, Ted felt deprived. He was jealous of his cousin John, that's Uncle Jack's son, and despised his own family's humble station in life. Ted revealed during his interviews for The Only Living Witness that he was mortified by the cars that his stepfather drove. He recalled being humiliated to be seen in them. From the time he could first walk and talk, Ted Bundy was superficial as fuck. He always pulled his mother to the most expensive racks in the clothing stores. However, she could never afford them. This preoccupation with material possessions would stay with him and only intensify. From a very young age, he was deeply, deeply materialistic. Ted would outgrow his initial distaste for his new home in Washington. However, he never got over the arrogant disdain for anything he regarded as common. Speaking of common, Ted did not think highly of his stepfather. He thought John Bundy was common. Johnny's drawl made him seem a little slow. He was unlettered, and his perspectives in life were those of a modest southern country boy. A childhood friend of Ted named Terry Storwick said, Ted would often spar verbally with his stepfather and quickly get the best of him. Storwick witnessed Johnny taking a swing at Ted one day because of these verbal assaults. From what Ted revealed of his boyhood, he seemed to have tried his best to block his stepfather, Johnny, the interloper, from his mind. Of his elementary school years, Ted revealed that he was unsettled when an elementary school teacher, Mrs. Oyster, not a cartoon character, left to have a baby and was replaced by a substitute teacher. In the fourth grade, he reported that his teacher, Mrs. Ryan, was a voluptuous disciplinarian, but she treated me well. She took an interest in me. She was pleasant. I don't know how many fourth graders are walking around calling their teachers voluptuous, but okay. The rift between Ted and his stepfather reached its pinnacle when Ted suddenly refused to call Johnny dad after having done so for many, many years. He began calling Johnny father and then finally John. Childhood friend Terry says, you know, Ted was way ahead of Johnny when it came to intellectual things. Ted could talk Johnny into holes in the ground and leave him no way out but to use his body. Johnny was a man of few simple words, and Ted was his match physically by the time he was in the sixth grade. A couple of times I thought his dad was going to kill him. The anger was just there. Back then, John Bundy was a wiry little sucker, well muscled. I remember one particular occasion at their lake place. He was out cutting wood or something. Ted was, I guess, showing off for me, smart and. And John took a swing at him. If he would have connected, he would have laid Ted flat on his ass. He had a temper just as quick as Ted's. Personality problems that begin in early childhood often begin to show themselves during the teen years. And Ted Bundy didn't report any confidence-building successes as a child. Ted described his own youth as solitary. One of his favorite boyhood pastimes was listening to late-night talk radio. Alone in the dark of his room, he would pretend that he was part of this secret world. I'd really get into it, he said. As people would call in and be speaking their minds, I would be formulating questions as if they were speaking to me. It gave me a great deal of comfort to listen to them, and often it didn't make a hell of a lot of a difference what they were talking about. Here were people talking, and I was eavesdropping on their conversations. Bundy's years in the public school system of Tacoma appear for the most part uneventful. One thing to note is that it's been alleged that during his years at Hunt Junior High School, Ted Bundy would sometimes masturbate in the broom closet of his classroom. When some of the other boys got wind of this, they apparently waited to catch him in the act and did so on several occasions. They would then toss cups of cold water on him after the door was thrown open, followed by, of course, unrelenting teasing. When asked about this, Ted Bundy of course denies such a thing ever happened because why would you admit that? My thing is, why would you do it in the first place in the closet of the classroom and then do it so many times that you keep getting caught? That's fucking wild. Was his mother ever called? Questions, questions, questions. So many questions. If anyone has any answers, please email me because the questions are here. In junior high, he ran for student body vice president and loss. This chipped away at his already fragile confidence And apparently, he was never able to run for any elected office again, even though he did help others in high school run. With an athletic build and a love for skiing during the winter, Ted naturally sought out sports. He was apparently very good at track, taking third once in hurdles, and played football for a time as well. He failed, however, to make the basketball team as he was considered to be too small. Ted Bundy had a paper route where he delivered the Tacoma News Tribune. He also cut yards with three other boys, an adventure he would later call having a lawn cutting company, which, sure, Jan. Unsurprisingly, Ted was also a petty thief from a very young age. In his family, with all them damn kids, money was often tight, but he would learn to steal what he needed, including much of the ski equipment he used on his frequent weekend excursions. Ted had a short fuse that got him into boyhood scrapes. At Boy Scout camp, he shoved a plate into another scout's face, having taken a hatchet to a small tree, which work, don't cut down trees. On another scout outing, he tangled with a kid named John Moon, where Ted hit him over the head with a stick. Terry remembers, it was a very deliberate attack on another person. The way John Moon described it, he was attacked from behind. Storwick continued, it was really easy to see when Ted got mad. His eyes turned just about black. I suppose that sounds like something out of a cheap novel, but you could see it. He had blue eyes that were kind of flecked with darker colors. When he got hot, they seemed to get less blue and darker. It didn't have to be a physical affront either. Someone would say something and you could just see it in his face. The dark flecks seemed to expand. Okay, for my cat owners out there, do you guys also see this in your cats? When you're playing with them and they get those crazy zoomy eyes? You know what I mean? Is he, is he in like legit predator fucking mode? Scary, scary. What would you do if you saw a human do that? I would run the fuck away. Demon, demon possessed. Any fucking way. By the time Ted Bundy was a preteen, he was obsessed with, will you guess it? Probably not. Detective magazines and their gory pictures of sexually assaulted bodies. Why the fuck were these available for public consumption? I don't know, but he was obsessed with them. It was around that time that Ted Bundy also became a peeping fucking Tom. And then a downhill reclusive spiral lasted all the way throughout high school. His mother can't really believe that Bundy was the voyeur he admits to being. She just can't imagine how he got out of the house. All she ever saw of pornography were a couple of playboys under the bed. She said, he never gave us any trouble at all. We didn't send our children to church. We went with them. Ted always had lots of buddies. I mean, sure, die on the hill of the church, Louise, because they have such a good reputation of being on the right side of sexual assault. Go off, fucking asshole. (laughs) She's the fucking worst. Bundy said many times that in adolescence, he suffered from an extreme loss of self-esteem and deep insecurities, and that he had very few dates. Were there any signs of this? Mrs. Bundy's voice takes on her characteristic tone of bewilderment. No, not at all. From the time he was born, Ted had just as much love as anyone. We just can't ever imagine whatever happened. From Ted and other sources, Dr. Carlyle learned that there were no indications of physical or sexual abuse in the home. However, if you go down some deep Reddit holes, which might also be some creepypasta shit, there are some rumors and theories that maybe... Ted was sexually assaulted by his grandfather in the greenhouse, which if his grandfather, you know, potentially sexually assaulted his own daughter, why would Ted be off limits? Who fucking knows? Fucking horrible either way. Who knows? When asked by Dr. Carlisle what his personality was like in junior high, Ted said, it's hard to say. I had a lot of friends, but I became less dependent on friends and I was more of an individualist. I was interested in things that were going on around the country. I memorized things I heard on the radio. I was less interested in peers and more of an individual. If you were a loser, just say so. It's fine. I wasn't that popular in elementary school. I can admit it. Just you were more of an individualist. You memorized things you heard on the radio. (sighs) Okay, go off. But then later, Ted said, I longed to be in the inner circle, but I was average I was envious of the kids at the top reading level, and it humiliated me that I wasn't up there with them. I dated some girls in junior high, and I went to parties with the socially adept. This is interesting because he just said that he was less interested in social activities because he was an individual and memorized shit on the radio. And then here, he says that he went to parties with the socially adept, which, what the fuck is that? Did he not consider himself to be a part of this socially adept crowd? Probably not. He was also jerking it in a coat closet in a classroom, so go off, Ted. It is important to note how strongly Ted Bundy was affected when his biological father abandoned him. In his 1976 pre sentence investigation report, Dr. Al Carlisle writes It is of interest that the defendant displayed marked signs of hostility when asked about his early childhood. Specifically, when he was asked about his father's whereabouts, his face became quite contorted and reddened, and he paused momentarily. He then gained composure and replied rather succinctly, you might say that he left my mother and me and never rejoined the family. Louise Bundy tersely admits that Ted was never told anything about his biological father. John Bundy was always daddy. Ted never had to ask about the, she struggles for the word, the other man, because he never heard about him or had seen him or anything. In our neighborhood, there were no other children his age. He didn't know any differently. When I lived with the folks, it was this is granddad, this is grandmother, and this is mother. Did it ever bother Ted? Louise's face is a mask. Not that I know of. It wasn't something we ever talked about. In one of the many versions of how Ted found out he was illegitimate, Ted told Dr. Carlyle that he found his birth certificate when he was 13 and the father was marked unknown. He apparently shrugged and said, I had had a sixth sense. I didn't feel nauseous or tearful. Dr. Carlisle, however, wonders if Ted said the quiet part out loud and if the words nauseous and tearful might actually reflect his feelings because that's specific as fuck. (laughs) Another story was that one day he was having an argument with his cousin John about who was going to have the best chance of success in the future. His cousin reportedly said that he was going to a university in Europe and have an expensive car to drive around in. Ted said he was going to do the same. The argument heated up, at which time his cousin told Ted he wouldn't be able to do those things because he was illegitimate. This came as a complete shock to Ted, who began crying and yelling that it wasn't true. John was like, I have some fucking receipts, bitch, took him to where the family documents were and showed Ted his birth certificate. It said the father was unknown, which also, damn... That savage. Savage fucking cousin was like, oh, you want to go, bitch? Here's some fucking receipts. You ain't shit. <laughs> my God, that would hurt my feelings, too. Ted Bundy's longtime girlfriend, Liz Kendall, confirms this account in her memoir, The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, which w- was an interesting read. We'll get into it later. <laughs> she said, shaking with nervousness, He told me that he was illegitimate. It had come as a terrible shock. A cousin had been teasing him about it, and Ted had refused to believe it. The cousin had taken Ted up to the attic and shown him proof, his birth certificate. Ted was upset by his cousin's cruelty and furious with his mother because she had left him unprepared for humiliation at the hands of his cousin. She never even had the decency to tell me herself, he said bitterly. He asked if I thought I should confront his mother about it. I told him no. I could sympathize with her. She had made a mistake when she was young, as had I, but had overcome it and had gone on to make a life for herself. It couldn't have been easy that many years ago, harder, I was sure, than it was for me when I was pregnant with my daughter, Molly. I'm sure it's a source of a lot of pain for her, I said, and that's probably why she didn't talk about it. It's not important anymore. What's important is that you've got a lot going for you. I love you because you're wonderful, which fuck off. That's not cool. Her partner revealed to her trauma, like intense trauma. Hey, I'm actually illegitimate. It bothers me. I found out in a really traumatic way. I want to talk to my mom about it. What do you think? And her response is to project and say, oh, well, because I had this thing that I considered embarrassing happen to me, she must also be embarrassed. So no, don't bring it up. This obviously affects him too. And who knows? If he would have talked about it with his mother, maybe it would have resolved his fucking mommy-daddy issues. Maybe he wouldn't have become a fucking serial killer. Thank you, Elizabeth Kendall. Anyway, I mean, of course, not blaming her in any way for his fuck shit, but it could have fucking helped. You never know. Talking helps. Go to therapy, people. Anyway, Mrs. Bundy dismissed that story and said, his girlfriend was a pretty mixed up gal. When Louise was asked if she ever felt the need to explain illegitimacy to ted she said no he understood he was just irritated with his cousin for cranking on him about it his junior high friend terry storwick disagrees terry is the first person with whom ted shared the knowledge of his illegitimacy terry said ted never told me how he discovered he was illegitimate we were in high school and we were down at my parents beach place talking about something personal it might have had to do with how he was arguing with his dad he just said of course you know that's not my real father A lot of things fell into place for me right then and there. I said, well, why is your name Mundy? He went on to tell me that he had been born in Philadelphia. Very vague stuff. The rat didn't marry his mother and such. I think he was wondering how I was going to think about him. It seemed to me that this kind of thing was like being adopted or something. So I said, well, there are people who love you now. I think I said I thought it was no big deal. But he said something to the effect that for him, it made a huge difference that it was important to him. It wasn't just something to be swept under the rug. When I made light of the situation, he said, well, it's not you that's the bastard. He was bitter when he said it. His illegitimacy was so deeply unsettling that it had been reported to Dr. Carlyle that Ted was maybe led to believe that his mother was his sister and his grandparents were his parents. Ted naturally denies this. I can't imagine where that came from. I'm sure Ted never said that, says Mrs. Bundy. Then with satisfaction, It must be a made-up tale. Family members do report remembering Ted calling Louise mommy when he was three years old. On August 31, 1961, eight-year-old Anne-Marie Burr went missing. Anne-Marie and her little sister Mary slept upstairs. That evening, in the middle of the night, Anne-Marie's little sister woke up crying. Anne took her sister down to her parents' room, and after consoling her, their mother Beverly told Anne, to lead her little sister back to bed and the children went back to sleep. When Mrs. Burr woke the next morning at 5 a.m., she stepped into the hallway and saw a horrifying scene. Both the front room window and the front door were wide open. The family quickly realized that Anne Marie was missing. They called the police and searches began for Anne Marie. The next day, the police investigation was in full swing. A hundred soldiers from the nearby Fort Lewis 50 Washington State National Guardsmen, along with police and civilians, began searching for Anne Marie. It was a city-wide search. To this day, she has never been found, dead or alive. It is thought that whoever kidnapped Anne Marie quietly entered the house through the unlocked living room window. Please go lock your doors and windows. The Burr family dog made little or no noise that night. And it appears that Anne Marie was simply woken up and led out of the house through the front door. The only direct evidence the investigators would find was a shoe print in the muddy grass next to an overturned bench, which was below the unlocked living room window. There were no fingerprints other than those belonging to the family found at the crime scene. After several months, the trail went cold. And now I'm going to read to you an excerpt from The Bundy Murders by Kevin Sullivan, which is amazing. On Saturday, May 9, 1987, an article appeared in the local section of the Tacoma News Tribune. At the top of page one, screamed a headline in bold print. Expert says Bundy killed girl 8 when he was 14. Theodore Robert Bundy, who had now been on death row in Florida since the late 1970s, had by this time made numerous references to murders he had committed, but only in the third person. Following this same pattern, in an interview with Dr. Ronald Holmes, He made statements indicating he was, in fact, responsible for Anne-Marie Burr's disappearance. The following is taken directly from that May 1987 article. Bundy talked of a person involved in a series of murders in Washington near Lake Sammamish State Park. I then asked him if it would be reasonable to assume that this other person may have had earlier victims. He said, Well, this other person we're talking about may have started much earlier. After making the obvious connection between himself, the Lake case, and the killer of Anne Marie Burr, Bundy posits that perhaps this person's first murder may have involved a female as young as eight or nine. Later in the interview, Bundy explains how this other person could have abducted Anne Marie and begins reciting certain facts which are accurate to the case. True Bundy could have learned these things many years earlier after reading about the events in the newspaper, but he also may have known them from having first-hand knowledge of the crime because he fucking did it. Ted Bundy lived about two miles from the Burr family. His uncle also lived close to where Anne Marie Burr had piano lessons, and because he spent some time with his uncle, it's at least possible he could have seen her, maybe even spoken to her. It's also known that as an adult, prior to being obsessed with murder, He was a peeping tom so prowling around anne marie burr's house at night wouldn't have been out of the question at the time of anne marie's disappearance ted was 14 years old and he had a newspaper route that likely allowed him to ride his bike right past her house her disappearance triggered a massive city-wide search to find her or her body some believe that ted bundy may have kidnapped and killed anne marie When asked by Dr. Carlisle about the disappearance of Anne-Marie, Ted Bundy said, Well, I didn't know anything about it. I was so involved in my school activities, I didn't pay much attention to it. Dr. Carlisle said, It didn't make any sense that Ted wasn't aware of it since it was in the papers and undoubtedly the talk around the dinner tables, at school, in and out of classrooms every day for weeks. Ted Bundy, however, dismissed any discussion about Anne-Marie's disappearance by claiming he just didn't pay attention to it. However, it's impossible that he didn't pay attention to the story. Dick Larson, an associate editor of the Seattle Times, told me the entire town was up in arms about it. Dick said an event of that magnitude hadn't taken place in the town for years. Ted telling me he paid no attention to this raises serious red flags in my mind regarding the things he didn't want to tell me. Also, as someone who had a newspaper route, her missing photo was all over those newspapers that he delivered so he fucking saw it and he knew about it. He's lying. He did it. He's a fucking creep. By the time Ted Bundy entered Wilson High School he was considered to be the quintessential loner. Might have had something to do with him jerking it in the closet but okay. At some point his emotional growth just simply stopped. He would later speak of feeling left behind. Ted became very skilled at wearing what Dr. Hervey Klecklow called a mask of sanity, a condition prevalent in psychopaths, both violent and nonviolent. The psychopath does not have a conscience and so does not react to situations in the same way as those who do possess a conscience. The guilt, shame, or remorse felt by the majority of humans when they've done something wrong is simply not a part of their lives. They can't relate to such baggage. To the psychopath, to be concerned about such things is pure foolishness, laughable, and a complete waste of time. This is why psychopaths in professions which require them to lie to their customers on a daily basis tend to be very successful. They may never commit murder, but they'll never lose a wink of sleep over defrauding people. If you can say anything you want and do anything you want without any internal controls being placed upon you, every day becomes a no holds bar kind of adventure. Everything is yours for the taking. You'll be relatively unnoticed by others in your society. Many of those who do notice may not like you, but that doesn't matter to you. The psychopath understands what the acceptable moral standards of a civilized society are. He just doesn't accept them for himself. And so an appropriate mask must be created in outward life. A mask people can see, be around, get to know and be comfortable with. Because for the deceived, that is the genuine person. They can never believe that what's standing before them is actually a mirage. For the psychopath, it's important to perform like an actor on stage, creating this fictional outer life. Detection of such people is often very difficult. The first signs of serious problems in Ted's inner world was a sudden and complete halt in his social development. In junior high, everything was fine, he told Stephen Mashad in The Only Living Witness. Nothing that I can recall happened the summer before my sophomore year to stunt me or otherwise hinder my progress. But I got to high school and I didn't make any progress. He sounded genuinely perplexed. How can I say it? I'm at a loss to describe it even now. Maybe I didn't have the role models at home that could have aided me in school. Everyone else just seemed to move on and I didn't. I don't know why and I don't know if there's an explanation. Maybe it's something that was programmed by some kind of genetic thing? In my early schooling, there seemed to be no problem in learning what the appropriate social behaviors were. It just seemed like I hit a wall when I got to high school. As Bundy matured physically, he developed into a well-coordinated athlete and a handsome young man. Yet the mental maturity was not there and would never come. Literally, a man-child. Ted was extremely self-conscious. He considered himself too skinny to compete with the bigger boys. He said, I attempted to get on the basketball team and a couple of other basketball teams and I failed it was terribly traumatic for me. I just didn't know what to do. I thought it was something personal. Terry Storwick remembers, he didn't have the confidence. He could have been a really strong influence on a lot of people if he had the self-confidence to go along with that intellect. It seemed to me that he was just tongue tied in social situations. It didn't have to be girls. Meeting new friends or meeting people from another school was a difficult thing for him to do. We'd be standing in the hallway, And someone would come up to me and say, hey, Terry, we're going to have a party Friday. Can you come over? Ted would be standing right there and he wouldn't be asked. It wasn't that he was singled out for ridicule. But you have to remember that Ted was a very sensitive person. Very sensitive. Which, I mean, if I was that person, I too would not invite the fucking weirdo kid who was jerking off in the coat closet to my house. Ted felt at ease in only two environments. The ski slopes in the classroom. I spoke up in class, he explained. It's a formalized setting and the ground rules are fairly strict. Your performance is measured by different rules than what happens when everybody is peeling off into little clicks down the hallway. Ted Bundy had a single date throughout his three years of high school. He revealed to author Stephen Mashaud that he would have liked to go out more, but he never could tell if a girl liked him, so he assumed she didn't. I'm particularly dense or insensitive. Not knowing what a woman's interested, he explained. I mean, I've been described as handsome and all this shit or attractive, but I don't believe it. It's a built-in insecurity. I don't believe I'm attractive. Sex confused him. When his friends talked about girls and what they were doing with them, or wished they were doing with them, or lied about what they were doing with them, Ted listened without understanding. He said, I had trouble grasping any of it. It kind of went over my head. Had explored his sexuality by peeping down from his room into his neighbor's bathroom. Normal, to fit in and produce this air of sophistication, Ted saw nothing wrong with shoplifting those things that his stepfather, John Bundy, couldn't buy with his cook's salary. Ski equipment, home furnishings, you name it, he stole it. His mother says he thought they were just gifts from the department store where he worked. As a teenager, Bundy was caught trying to steal a car, but was let off with a warning. Screams, 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 and Black Lives Matter. Anyway, during his senior year, and possibly even in his junior year, he went skiing with his friends on the weekend. He devised a way to forge counterfeit ski tickets so he and his friends would be able to save money when they were skiing. He would bleach off letters from the old tickets and then use a rubber stamp and colored stamp pads to create new tickets. Skiing with his friends was exceptionally good for him because it allowed Ted to be one of the guys. Dr. Carlisle learned later that unfortunately this was also a traumatic experience for Ted because after a day on the slopes, his friends went to dances while Ted went back home. Not sure what stopped him from going to the dances, maybe a lack of confidence, but he didn't go. Ted's primary objective from his teen years onward was the perfection and maintenance of a credible public persona, his mask of sanity. Lacking true adult emotions, he had to put on the look of normalcy. He underwent a process of mock socialization, like an alien life form acquiring appropriate behavior through mimicry and artifice. It was painful and confusing to Ted. I just didn't know what made things tick, Ted told Stephen Mashad. I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what made people be attractive to one another. I just didn't understand social interactions. Ted graduated from Wilson High School in 1965. In the fall of that year, he enrolled at the University of Puget Sound, but he didn't declare a major. He continued to live at home. Underneath Bundy's facade, at least by the time he was an adolescent, his life was a chaotic roller coaster of highs and lows. Dr. Lewis believes that Bundy was a severe manic depressive, at least from 1967 onwards. His fragmented personality was at work all the time, vice president of his church group by day, and a voyeur sneaking around to peer into the windows of women watching them undress by night, one person but living two lives. Because he was articulate and cultivated an image of serious mindedness to hide his loneliness, he was regarded as scholarly by the other students. However, His grades were only good, not great. He graduated from Wilson High School with just above a B average, good enough to earn Ted admission to the University of Puget Sound, his uncle's alma mater, with a small scholarship. Going to Puget Sound was more out of necessity than as a first choice. He had no car and couldn't afford to live in the dorms, so he lived at home close to the university. His freshman year was incredibly lonely. He spoke only when spoken to or in class, He made no new friends and was basically invisible. Freshman courses taken in large, impersonal lecture halls offered little opportunity to be anything but anonymous and small, the way he felt most of the time. His mother claimed, he got along fine as far as I could tell. He got good grades that first year. Louise was alarmed that her son, quote, never got into the social life at school at all. He'd come home, study, sleep, and go back to school. Dr. Carlisle said he lived his life in a compulsive manner that was well-ordered and exact. Conversations were planned and rehearsed many times before they took place. It was very important for Ted to never be caught off guard. Life was like a chess game to him. He was always mentally two moves ahead of his opponent, so no matter what move was made, he always had several suitable counter-reactions that could assure him success. By Ted's account, my social life was a big zero. I spent a great deal of my time by myself. It was a lonely year for me, and it was worse because I didn't have my neighborhood buddies around. Although he was rushed to join a fraternity, he wouldn't join because I didn't feel socially adept enough. I didn't feel I knew how to function with those people. I felt terribly uncomfortable. Which, I mean, girl, frat bros are their own um species of human, so... Not being able to interact with them is is fine. (laughs) Ted had no social life. He felt the students put too much emphasis on fraternity and sorority activities, and he didn't have the money or the social standing to get into them. Ted said at the end of the school year, I had to break away. I hadn't found what I wanted. It was clear that he didn't fit in, and it bothered him. He revealed to Dr. Carlisle that during his university years, he had a longing for a beautiful co-ed, but didn't have the skill or social acumen to cope with it. Without the co-ed he desired, life seemed to repeat itself on a daily basis. His social life consisted of class attendance and whatever interaction he might have had with his few high school classmates that he still kept in touch with. One day, he attended a university lecture on international affairs on mainland China, and immediately, he was struck with the notion that here, here was an area where people would take notice of him. However, he didn't think much about what the subject might entail. Ted saw the Chinese language as, and this is gross, exotic and glamorous. Gross. He desired one day to work in the State Department. In the fall of 1966, following his freshman year at the University of Puget Sound, Ted Bundy transferred to the University of Washington where he dormed. There, as a sophomore at the university, he focused, really honed in, on his newfound interest in foreign affairs. He felt that the U.S. government didn't deal justly with the People's Republic of China. His goal was to graduate from college, get a diplomatic position with the government, and work on improving trade with China. Ted wanted to have a position of authority that would allow him to work on promoting positive relations between America and China. His new major did set him apart from the rest of the undergraduate population at this massive university. He acquired a little restaurant Chinese, learned to use chopsticks, and actually made a few friends, which, sure, bitch, learn some restaurant Chinese and learn to use chopsticks, and that means you can go work for the fucking State Department. Any of my Asian American Pacific Islander listeners, there are resources in the show notes with everything that's going on within this community right now, and I apologize if this is triggering hearing this dumb fucking bitch appropriate your culture and think he can understand your culture by learning restaurant Chinese and using chopsticks. It's just, it's fucking ridiculous. It's fucking ridiculous. I hate that these fucking assholes appropriate culture and do literally the bare fucking minimum, which how the fuck does learning restaurant Chinese or learning to use chopsticks even touch even touch the surface of what the asian american pacific islander community has to fucking go through on a daily goddamn basis you think you could fix relations okay i'm going on (laughs) i hate him i hate him i hate that he's appropriating this culture as he does everything but remember he's ted fucking bundy please check the show notes i'm going to list a lot of activists that i follow that i think are fucking that i think are amazing Uh, yeah okay Ted was also concerned with the Watts riots, which took place in a section of Los Angeles in August of 1965 and the way that people were treating the Blacks, which as a Black person, please, for the love of all that is holy, do not call us the Blacks. I've listened to some podcasts where people are like reading shit from online and they say the Blacks. We're Black people, we're African Americans. We're not the Blacks. It's racist. Full fucking stop. Moving on. Ted also said that he enjoyed taking the counterpoint playing devil's advocate on issues when debating with people, which of course Ted Bundy fucking loved to play the devil's advocate, bitch. The impression that Dr. Carlyle had of Ted at this point was a lonely boy seeking an identity. He didn't find it in high school or at the University of Puget Sound, and he would try to find it at the University of Washington. His goals were impressive, but his accomplishments minimal. Of his social life at the University of Washington, Ted said, I was not a joiner of fraternities, but I wanted social belonging. I didn't want to feel my identity was measured by a social group. I went through rush for four days, but the social politics didn't do much for me, so I went into a dorm. There was too much emphasis on social life, and I wasn't interested in parties or appearances. Plus, the cost of the fraternity was higher than the dorms, and I didn't have the finances for it. At first, I was fully involved with my studies. I went out with an Asian girl. It felt right because I was in Asian studies. Die, Ted Bundy, die. Oh, he is dead. Yay. After we we went out a couple of times, her father had a talk with me. He was very nice about it. He said that he wanted his daughter to marry a boy who was Asian. He thought our backgrounds would conflict too much. It wasn't a problem. I understood where he was coming from. Again, check the show notes for the AAPI resources. I'm just going to move on. I'm just going to move on. He's the worst. It would be at the University of Washington that Ted Bundy would encounter the co-ed of his dreams. Her name was Diane Edwards. In other books, she's been named Stephanie Brooks, Marjorie, or Carla. She was beautiful, polished, and from a well-to-do family in San Francisco. She was also a a little older than Ted and expected to graduate in the spring of 1968. She was everything he ever wanted or thought he wanted out of life. Diane was from a class into which Ted had previously enjoyed only an upward glimpse. She was in short everything that Ted Bundy was not and wished to become. Thank you so much for listening to True Crime Aficionados. If you like what you heard, please rate and review, subscribe, all that jazz, because you know, science, algorithms, data, math, science. The sources that I used for today's episode are The Phantom Prince by Elizabeth Kendall, The Bundy Murders by Kevin Sullivan, The 1976 Psychological Assessment by Dr. Al Carlyle, The Only Living Witness by Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth, The Deliberate Stranger by Richard Larson and the Vanity Fair article, The Roots of Evil, written by Myra McPherson. If you have any stories about your connection or your family's connection to Ted Bundy, I would love to hear them. No pasta, please. You can email true crime aficionados at gmail.com. Please tune in next week where I will be discussing Ted Bundy's university years, where he meets his first girlfriend and has his first breakup, which, I mean, we know how these... These mediocre men like to handle breakups. They go on murderous rampages. (laughs) If you made it this far, stay tuned for a little treat. There are some wonderfully delicious purrs by my kitten Mimi, who crawled onto my lap and fell asleep while I was editing. All right, see you next week. Thanks. Bye.